0: New year, new season. Welcome to Trashy Divorces, y'all. Welcome back. I'm Stacy. I'm Alicia.
1: We're so excited to be here for another season of finely curated trash candy just for you. If you've been with us for a while now, thank you for coming back to the Trash Bar. You rock. We are grateful for all of our return listeners. But we feel like many of you might have been spreading the trashy word during the holidays It looks like we picked up some new listeners. So welcome to all listeners, old, new, new listeners. Thanks for checking us out. Yes, we feel like you may have gone home and
0: um, told everyone you know about us. And we appreciate that. And we
1: appreciate that. This week, we're kicking off season five. And every song in season five will be a Frank Sinatra sung song. This week, we start with one of his most famous, Love and Marriage It's a song with lyrics by Sammy Kahn, music by Jimmy Van Heusen. Love and Marriage. Here's your trash candy spiderweb that's crazy. Love and Marriage is originally introduced by Frank Sinatra in the 1955 TV production of Thornton Wilder's Our Town Hmm. that was aired on the producer's showcase with, you remember who was the- Oh, God, really? Yep. Dominic Dunn. (laughs) worked on that production, and that is the first time that Dominic Dunn and Frank Sinatra met each other, and the feud begins. That is fascinating.
0: All right, in 1956, Love and Marriage won the Emmy for Best Musical Contribution from the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and uh, it seemed like a fitting musical theme to kick off the trashy divorces season of Sinatra.
1: Love and Marriage also used in the TV sitcom Married with Children.
0: Yes, that's where I know it from, honestly. It was a terrible show that I watched a lot of because I was at the right
1: age for that. So we have some stories that kick across the generations today. I am starting off. It's finally Ocean's Eleven, 12 Degrees of Frank Sinatra. My episode this week, we had to talk about his first marriage to his teenage sweetheart who will become known as Nancy Sr., his first wife.
0: Yep, and uh, I have the scandalous and... Lightly known uh, trash baggery of Charles Dickens, English Victorian-era author.
1: Not a divorce, because you didn't do that in uh, no, Victorian No, that, that would have been
0: terrible for
1: his reputation. <laughs> Y'all, so we hope you have had a terrific December that you are kicking off a great 2020. We have been out for a few weeks, so we have a ginormous magic mirror this week. Many, many thanks. Welcome to Team Trash Candy all of our new Trash Pandas. Yeah. Stacy, right. start, start us off. I'm
0: going to start us off. We have Irida O, Kathleen M, kehan B, Megan B, Jennifer H, Teresa H, Mary
1: W, Brianna N, Lynn I, Lori G, Caroline, Allison E, Erica, Marilyn J, Allison P, Sarah M, LaShera, Lauren F, Rachel E, Allison
0: G. We have Jesse F, Ashley M, Lauren S, Rachel F, Ashton, Michelle E, Morgan K, Martha
1: F, Leanne K, Natalie, Beth, Ailish H, Stevie, Christy C, Antonia R, Jennifer G, Faith T, Amanda N, Bree T, Jennifer D,
0: Nicole M, Jacqueline D, Marin, Sandy M, and Julie H. Thank you all so much.
1: Oh my gosh. So many thanks to all of our patrons, old and new. Consider joining over there if you just can't get enough. Trash candy. We have lots of levels. Support your favorite indie podcasters. We'd appreciate it.
0: Love and marriage may not have gone together like a horse and carriage this week. You
1: ready to talk about our first wives club?
0: We may as well go, go, go. Oh, trashy
1: style.
0: So, Alicia, I've been noticing um, all of the index cards and string tied to walls and stuff, and I feel like maybe you're planning something.
1: All (laughs) color-coded. All color-coded. Welcome. Oh, my gosh, I'm so excited. Season five. It's time for Ocean's Eleven. Okay. This is my wish fulfillment. This is a lot of other listeners' wish fulfillment. Our... Social streams are amazing, and they give us so many ideas for That's divorces true. everybody wants to hear, mm-hmm. and for everyone who's ever had a divorce with any degree of attachment to Frank Sinatra, the season is for you. <laughs> it's Ocean's Eleven, 12 Degrees of Frank Sinatra. Okay. Old Blue Eyes, Chairman of the Board. My story this week, as well as the next 11 weeks, will all have a tie-in to Sinatra in some way. There will be deeper dives happening every Wednesday in the corresponding series on Patreon. These are some sticky, sticky spiderwebs, y'all. And it is going to take me 24 episodes to truly present the trash candy and all the spider web connections. And oh, y'all, it's just so good. <laughs> so most of you might have an idea of some of the breadth of the man the myth the legend sure. that is Frank Sinatra. Sure. Just to set his overall contributions just get everybody on the same same page here. I'm taking a piece written in 1992 from Variety, uh written by Richard Setlow talking about Frank.
0: Okay. He was like, OG oh, thug life. I mean, that is one thing I've learned from trashy divorces. OG. Yeah. No,
1: Frank Sinatra is the guy mm-hmm. that if you look at spider webs and connections, he's the guy in the center you can get anywhere. Yeah. 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 With Frank Sinatra. He's He
0: really wanted to be a mobster if he was not actually a mobster.
1: It's one of his weaknesses. Mm. We're gonna wait for it. Mm-hmm. The peace and variety. Sinatra is the movie star whose roles in 59 features ranged from unforgettable Academy Award-winning portrayals to mercifully forgotten cameos. The movie producer and the owner of a tremendously successful record company, the radio and then TV star of his own shows, the late-night club and concert promoter whose appearances in Las Vegas to Tokyo are still sold-out events. He is also the ladies' man whose flirtations, romances, marriages, infidelities, affairs, divorces, and liaisons with some of the world's most glamorous women were reported by the press with a frenzy usually reserved for a war, and in fact, were running frequently bloody battles. He is the casino owner, the chairman of the board, the confidant of presidents from Roosevelt to Reagan. The wise guy whose associations with mafia mobsters inspired reams of news stories, long FBI files, and best-selling novels. He is also a philanthropist whose personal contributions and fundraising for charity exceeded a billion dollars. Complicated guy. A lot to handle, right? Yeah. yeah. Today, we're going to start simple, nice and easy, if you will. (laughs) Frank Sinatra is a frequent batter at the love plate. He's got four up, three down. Today we're going to talk about first up. His first marriage to Nancy Barbato. Nancy Senior, so to speak. Okay. What a story. Okay, so let's set the stage for these kids to get them together on the depot. Francis Albert Sinatra, born December 12th, 1915... He's a Sagittarius baby. He is born as the first generation only child to Italian immigrant parents. He's born right across the river from Manhattan. He's in Hoboken, New Jersey, right across the Hudson River from New York City. The mean streets of Hoboken, one square mile of, okay. (laughs) Here's the thing about Frankie Boy. In this tiny area with all kinds of families, immigrant families from everywhere, Frank is the only kid he knows who's an only child. Hmm.
0: Everybody else
1: has these large, noisy, amazing, sort of complicated and like everyone else has a ton of brothers and sisters, but like not Frank. And as you might imagine, little Frankie, because of this might get all of the attention of both of his parents. He's definitely chairman of the babies Mm. and starts his training young. Dad is an easygoing city fireman at first, has a saloon a little later. His mom, Dolly, H-U-S-T-L-E-R hustler. She has a ton of jobs. She's a practical nurse. She also is super, super into democratic politics and can make all of Little Italy go for a, in her ward to a particular candidate. Like, okay. she is a powerful player in local politics.
0: Interesting. So back in the machine days... Back she, in the machine days. She she's an, on the
1: ground. She was an important part of the machine. Okay. Yep. She's cool. a forebearer to women making shit happen on the ground in local politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay.
1: Dolly, mom, also maybe is not as easygoing as dad. <laughs> but they... Both parents, spoil, pamper. Frankie has the best of things. Mom has been described as hell on wheels. Like she's kind of a dominant character. So there's some definite amago I think, that's going to come into play as we explore the man myth legend that is Frank Sinatra. Frank also has some uncles who might be bootleggers in the Prohibition era too. I I think everybody back then had some uncles who might be bootleggers. And by the time he's a Ute, school has become way less interesting for Frank. He uh, is having way more fun being a ruffian on the mean streets of Hoboken. He's hanging in the pool hall, doing some boxing. And by high school, his formal education is complete. Quits. And his mom's is like... All right, uh, we'll get you a job. That's cool. So he shuffles around like a ton of gigs. He works on the docks. He slings papers. Like every gig he can get, he takes because he's not in school. So let me go check out the Hoboken. Okay. And probably because his parents have instilled something in only child Frankie, Frank knows he's destined for something better then hanging out with up-and-coming mobsters in New Jersey, he goes to see Bing Crosby one night. And the heavens open, lightning strikes, and Frank Sinatra is like, this is it. I'm going to be a singing star. Hmm. This is what I want from my life. Fortunately, it appears he actually could sing. <laughs> well, like, singing's never been his thing. Like, he's... His dad, like, has a saloon, he sings a little, like, gets a nickel and a pack of cigarettes or whatever. But becoming a, becoming a star. Sure. No. But he's in the audience that night with a little girl. Not a little girl. She's 17. He's 19. He's on a date with uh, Nancy Rose Barbato. She's born March 25th, 1917. She's a little younger They meet in Long Branch, New Jersey in 1934. So they are childhood sweethearts. Nancy Rose is the daughter of a plasterer. She is also a first generation Italian immigrant, but she comes from a very large Italian family. Lots of noise and food and the things that, right, we can imagine Frank is going to be into because it wasn't his experience growing up. And the teenage sweethearts are going to well, sweetheart through the coming years. Now, it's the Depression era. And Frank, who is a high school dropout, not ever having had a vocal lesson with his new big dream to be a star. That's it. But Nancy believes in him. And Frank is working for very little to free. He'll do parties, he'll do weddings, he'll do bar mitzvahs. Like, he's the wedding singer. Pays an exposure. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) He'll even do a few things on the radio. But this gig will lead me to my next unpaid gig. (laughs) I mean, that's what he's doing. Yeah. In 1935, he does get like 15 minutes of fame in this amateur hour, but 15 minutes doesn't last that long. And soon Frank is working as a singing waiter. At this place called the Rustic Cabin. Wow. A roadhouse in in Alpine, New Jersey. Wow. Wow. From humble beginnings. He's saving all of his dimes. Nancy's working too. Young love. All that jazz. Now, there are probably some perks from the singing waiter gig that Frank likes. His weakness will always be girls, especially blondes and gangsters. (sighs) But girls, first and foremost, in 1938, right around Thanksgiving, Frank is working a shift and the cops bust in and arrest him. And he's like, what the hell? He has been charged with breach of contract a promise because apparently Frank, back in earlier November, November 3rd and November 6th, not once, but twice, bedded a few times this gal whose name is Antoinette de la Penta and uh, they dally few times and she's filed charges because frank has promised that he would marry her and then he did not wow and that's an arrestable offense huh apparently in 1937 that was against the rules so the charges are later dropped when it is revealed that antoinette is in fact already married so good times nancy his sweetheart asks him Frank, is this the first? And Frank replies, it will be the last. It's <laughs>
0: reassuring.
1: Dear listener, <laughs> it is not the last. It is nowhere close to the last. In fact. And it was not the first. It was not the That's first. That's my
0: takeaway. <laughs> it was
1: only the beginning. Okay. So remember Whirling Dervish, Hell on Wheels, Dolly Mama? Mm-hmm. Okay. Dolly Mama has an idea. Frank. You can't go promising girls you sleep with that you'll marry them if, dum-dum-dum. You're already married. You're already married. Genius. So February 4th, 1939, a young 24-year-old singing waiter, Frank Sinatra, (sighs) strolls down the aisle, wishes, (laughs) with the 22-year-old secretary, Nancy Rose. Mm Mm-hmm. At the Our Lady of Sorrows Church in Jersey City. Love and marriage, right?
0: Why not pick a venue with a happy name?
1: (laughs) Our Lady of Sorrows is a pretty, pretty sorrowful name for a church.
0: (laughs) Okay. To get get married in.
1: I mean, anyway, go ahead. Love and marriage, horse and carriage and all that. There's no honeymoon because the two of them are so broke, they take the weekend and have to be back at work on Monday. Yeah. Okay. Everything's coming up, Roses. (laughs) Things are about to change pretty fast for our lovebirds. They get a three-room, three-floor walk-up on Garfield Avenue in Jersey City. Their rent is $42 a month. I mean, sure, the depression and everything, but those were the days. (laughs) And Nancy is legit working her tail off all the time to support Frank's dream. She believes in him so hard. She gets a $15 advance on her salary. To have publicity photos made of Frank. And in 1940, the break that lasts longer than 15 minutes is going to happen. Okay. One night, performing as a singing waiter at the Rustic Cabin, just so happens to be in the audience, the trumpet playing band leader, Harry James, with his first wife, Louise. And Harry sees Frank and is like, that's our guy. Little fun spider web here. Harry James is going to divorce Louise in just I, a few years. I noticed that you called her his first wife. <laughs> his second wife is Betty Grable. Hmm. She of the legs. Okay. But right now in 1940, Harry James is like, hey, I can make you a star. Let's change your name to Frankie Satin. And Sinatra is like, nah, brah, we're not going to do oh, that. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> but Sinatra will. Happily take your one-year $75 a week contract. Wow. And it's on. And his rent is 40 bucks a month. That he's life is changing. Yep. Everything's coming up roses. So Nancy goes on tour with Frank and Harry James and the band. Nancy says those were the best days of her life. The best days last for about seven months because seven months later, Frank is on to a new band. He is now the front man for tommy dorsey
0: okay
1: nancy's back home having baby number one ah uh, whose name is also nancy yes confusingly named after her mother so to clear up confusion nancy rose barbado sinatra that we have been ta- calling nancy is now nancy senior different than baby nancy who's nancy jr sure
0: It used to be much more common for daughters to have their mother's names. Like that, like my story includes that too. Like it. Anyway, I'm not sure why we got away from that, except
1: confusion. And as the matrilineal line passes, these are the days of our lives. Okay. Nancy Jr. is born in June of 1940. Nancy Sr., dutiful wife, taking care of baby. Nancy Sr., I swear. Nancy Sr. is running Frank's fan club. She's signing his pictures. She's writing thank you notes while he's on the road.
0: If only there had been Patreon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Frank, here's their trick, because this is seriously still how broke they are. Frank will call her collect and she'll answer. Hello. Hi, I need to speak to, you know, collect call for Frank Sinatra. And they're broke, right? So he gives her an opportunity to be like, oh, all right. Yeah, uh, he's not here. She gets to give a few words. And he's like, oh, okay. No worries. Da, da da It's their secret code. So they never get charged for a call. But he still calls in to check up every day. And they do it with just a few words right. within the collect-call-for interchange. That's uh, Isn't
0: that interesting? That's very smart.
1: I mean, it's just, it's all good. We can't afford the money. Just checking in. Yeah. But they have their own, like, secret code. By 1942, Hollywood is calling. And Frank is in a movie with the Tommy Dorsey band, little MGM flick called Ship Ahoy. And legitimately, by 1942, Frank is the most famous singer in the nation. Please ask the question, because your face just went, huh? Ask it. Uh, I have a feel like... Oh, oh.
0: How? Uh, who were the others in contention for that title?
1: What? Ha, tell me how this happened. Because maybe nobody, because Frank's the only guy left standing who's not fighting in World War Two. Oh. Oh. Uh, yeah. yeah. Frank is not fighting. He has a... What does he have, he, fallen arches? What? What's... He's got a medical thing. Does he? It turns out that he has had a punctured eardrum in his youth. So he is disqualified from service. Seriously. Okay, so there is a lot of scuttlebutt about this at the time. It is not looked kindly upon, yeah, by the menfolk. Cadet bone spurs. yeah. He should be serving too, but at the time, this leaves Frank like last guy standing, right? And is able to make a connection with American women that is oh, so he becomes the. He's the Parallel. stand-in
0: for every a, husband and boyfriend got who it. is serving overseas. Okay. You got it, or is just a way at basic training or or whatever.
1: Yeah, okay, that's it. He's gonna make his connection with men a little way down the road, but right now, Frank becomes the fixation for lonely American women whose right. men are fighting at the front, and a lot of young girls too who aren't married. Mm-hmm. He's So it's funny to me that people think it was Elvis or the Beatles that shocked the world with these crazy, out-of-control girls. Nope. Frank was doing this in 1942. He decides to go solo. He has a three-week gig at the Paramount in New York, sold out every night. The fake news, like the news at the time, Mm -hmm. the news at the time is writing articles about How much are they paying all these girls to come in and scream? Because girls certainly wouldn't do this. (laughs) That's how nuts Mm -hmm. women are about him. He gets that three-week gig, never looks back. A star is born. He's gone solo. Women love him. I mean, do you think he had connections with powerful someones to
0: keep him out of the war? Or was that... The mafia?
1: Oh, I don't so we've got a whole lot to talk about on Patreon. Great question. Okay. okay. Add an index card and wrap some pink yarn around that one. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. But just to set the stage of his popularity in the 1940s, he has 17 top 10 singles in the 1940s. Wow. He's the biggest thing there was. So 1944, big year. His son Frankie Jr. is born. mm <laughs> Okay, so they've each got one
0: namesake. <laughs> That's it. Also in
1: 1944, Louis B. Mayer gives Frank a half a million dollar contract. Yeah, you can't be a, an
0: entertainment star without Louis B. Mayer
1: Hollywood. knocking on your door That's it. in the 40s. So the Sinatra family is heading west. Sure, It's the mid-1940s. The movies are really good to Frank. For now. He's breaking all the rules. He's singing. He's acting. He's doing the thing. Sagittarius boy, only child, has the spotlight and everything's great. But here's Nancy Sr., two kids, responsible with cash, tending home and hearth. And Frank is gallivanting around Hollywood, just having a good old time. And even though the family has moved out to California to be closer because they've still been right by coastal for the last little bit, Frank's never home. He's pretty busy with the scene. He's making his mark on Hollywood, carrying on with all the ladies. Punching Dominic Dunn in the face. Not yet. Not yet. Hold on. He's soon going to begin a steamy affair with Alana Turner, (laughs) the sweater girl. We're really sorry,
0: Nancy Sr. Oh, we're so sorry. We would have told you this was happening if we, or this was going to happen if we had our podcast back then. It'll be the last.
1: No, no, it's it's never going to be the last. Okay. So Lana Turner, y'all, I know it's awesome. It's a great story. She's coming for you next week. So I do want to drop in here, though, that as it pertains to Frank and Nancy Sr. Frank outfits a love pad for he and Lana that Lana sees and promptly turns down. Like, I see a lot of Barney Stinson decorating schema in my imagination. Lana wants to marry Frank. And remember, Frank has specifically gotten married <laughs> to avoid sticky situations right. like this. They fizzle out. Huh. Frank is not going to stay dormant for long. But right now, he's going to crawl back to Nancy Sr. But before we enter Ava Gardner... Wife number two and how we get there. I have a few fun facts for you about Frankie boy. In 1945, he stars and produces in a film short called the house I live in, which promotes religious and racial tolerance in 1945. This short film will win him an honorary Oscar But it will also get him branded as a pinko communist (laughs) and a mob lover. Hmm. So the Hearst papers hate him. Interesting. And Frank starts or finishes, I don't know, uh, this feud with a columnist named Lee Mortimer who gives Sinatra a bad review, insinuates Frank is a gangster. There's a Lee Mortimer with Hearst has it out for Sinatra. Yeah,
0: there's... There's, it's not crazy to think that Frank Sinatra's a gangster though.
1: Well, in one night outside of Cirrus, uh, in a fantastic role model for Sean Penn, Frank decks Lee Mortimer. Uh knocks him out. Lee Mortimer sues Frank Sinatra for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That suit is settled out of court. Louis B. Mayer makes Frank pay. Lee Mortimer $9,000 and publicly apologize. The other alternative is six months in jail. Yeah. And that's kind of a bummer on a career. Yeah. In part of this deal, Frank also has a bit of groveling to do in front of old W.R. In front of William Randolph Hearst. He's got to go in front of him, too, and be like, sorry, man. (laughs) Anyway, Frank, at least at this time, has redeemed his standing with Louis B. Mayer. It's one thing. So in 1947, another funny fact thing happens, this time in Cuba. Like We are definitely going to spend some time this season on Patreon talking about the mafia. I'm skirting your questions specifically on purpose because there's so many rabbit holes coming and I'm trying to stick to the narrative. But this particular story Frank, in 1947, gets invited and attends a mobster convention that's happening in Havana. (laughs) Frank Sinatra is the featured guest, the mob, and lucky Luciano. I think that's the thing is they understood him to be a guy like them, Like that, right? Well, because he is. He grew up with mobsters in Hoboken. These are his childhood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But Frank is the featured guest at the mobster convention in 1947. And uh, (laughs) like gangster con or something. Gangster con. Yeah. (laughs) And lucky Luciano is bringing all the gang together. And Frank is kind of like, shit, should I stay or should I go? Like he comes in to perform or whatever. And they're like, yeah, stick around, Frankie. It'll be fun. Uh, He stays. So this will mean that his bad press is going to continue. So now he's a pinko commie gangster womanizer. Hmm. That's a lot to handle. Racking up the accolades there. Also in 1947, Frank begins a fairly secret affair with Ava Gardner. She is hot off the heels of dating Peter Lawford, who Lana will then go on and date when she's done with Frank. Jeez. Oh, my God. It's so salacious, y'all. And Frank and Ava are carrying on quietly for a while until it is not quiet at all. And the press has no mercy. And poor Nancy Sr. is reading about her husband on the daily in every gossip column there is. And oh yeah, 1948 brings child number three to the couple, a daughter named Christina. Cool, cool. When did they get married again? 37? 1939. Okay, so... So we're a decade into this. Okay. Yes, we're about a decade in. There's not a whole lot left. Well, except yeah. Except there is. No,
0: it sounds like,
1: uh, <laughs> it sounds like he's <laughs> pursuing other opportunities in the romance department. For sure. So there, y'all, so much more about Ava coming. I'm going to keep the stream separate again. But mm-hmm. to sum up, by 1949, MGM, who is Louis B. Mayer, is pissed that number one, Frank is doing this much damage to yeah. the image of the star Ava Gardner that his studio has spent a fucking decade cultivating. You are ruining her. We did not work this hard for right. you to turn Ava into not a winning property. Yeah, no, he's nuking the brand. Frank, in his uh, can't shut his mouth up thing, oh, God. may have also said some pretty shitty stuff about Louis B. Mayer. And his oh. girlfriend at the time, Jenny Sims, that may have gotten back to Louis B. Mayer. But at the end of the day, Frank Sinatra is no longer serving the wishes of Louis. <laughs> yeah. And in April 1950, Frank is suspended with okay. MGM. Here's what the announcement says. Frank Sinatra asked for and received his release from the studio. <laughs> this is April Nancy who had been Nancy senior who had been sticking by him Valentine's Day 1950 files for separation wow now say what you will about Louis B Mayer there's a lot to say there but from the time where it's where he finds out about what Frank said about he and his girlfriend with the I can't believe you're doing this with Ava like this is the end of 49. So Frank's on the outs for a number of months before the contract is terminated. Louis B. Mayer, whatever you will say, does keep Sinatra on the payroll during this time, mainly for Nancy Sr., which I thought was nice. Mm -hmm. When the split does come between Frank and MGM, Frank has a year left on his contract. Mayer writes him an $85,000 check to close him out. And I know this bit in my trash candy soul, but I can't find the source where I saw it because I've been knee-deep in everything. I have heard that Louis B. Mayer just straight up writes that $85,000 check to Nancy Sr. and bypasses Frank altogether. I swear I've heard it. I'll validate it. I mean,
0: it doesn't sound like – it sounds like Louis B. Mayer did what he wanted to do.
1: I think he Always. thought Frank Sinatra was kind of a dick and right. was really fair to Nancy Senior right, in right. that agreement.
0: Yeah, like that wouldn't surprise, like he gets to screw over Sinatra and do yeah. something nice for a lady all at once.
1: Like I've been so knee deep. I've mm-hmm. got 1,500 sources I've looked at, so I can't place the one that I've seen that in because sure. I wanted to validate it before I said it, but bah, okay. But 1951. The whole thing with Frank and Nancy senior has bottomed out partly because he is puppy dog in love with Ava Gardner and must have her at whatever the cost. Frank is even going to head to Nevada to try to speed the divorce up. The divorce is finalized in November of 1951. And I have to say like Nancy senior comes out pretty well. She gets custody of the three kids, the California home, a 1950 Cadillac and a percentage of his income for life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do. not shabby, right? Frank says, I'd rather have her have it. I'll spend it. Frank is going to go flat broke, wash out and be bad off for the next few years after this. Like in a lot of ways, his voice is done and he'll come back out on top soon, but it, it's going to take a while. Nancy Sr. will never remarry. She remains steadfastly loyal to Frank.
0: Yeah, great man, myth. We're going to get into that in mind, too.
1: She takes care of his kids. She does charity work. Frank, throughout his life, will still come back to Nancy Sr.'s house so she can cook for him. He loves her good sense. She grounds him and sets him back, like, on the right way of thinking when he gets too much for himself. Like, they get divorced, but she never goes away Is this, like, constant rock of motherly amago? maybe, to a certain extent. But yeah, I'll feed you. You can fall asleep on my couch. That's fine. Even though this marriage of Frank's did not work, it's a hell of a love story. And it does last long after their breakup. Nancy Sr., Passes away July 13th, 2018 at the age of 101. Jeez. Frank, we're going to leave just right back in 1947 or so on the Trashy Divorces Depot until next week. And I guess we have to give some trash cans, but I don't think you understand the entire scope of Frank and Nancy Sr. without all the Ava that's going to be heaped to it. On the steamy, steamy pile. So for the first time in Trashy Divorces history, I'm pausing on the trash can ratings to be revealed next week.
0: Okay. Personally, I think that the, um, it will be the last, uh, that actually does warrant some trash cans.
1: I mean, we can go ahead and give a
0: prelim rating. If you, I mean, whatever, it's okay. I just, I think it's, I think it's a little sad that she ended up walking down the aisle with a guy who had definitely
1: been cheating on her. During their courtship, so. And continue to cheat on her throughout the. Right. Remainder of their marriage. Right. She did a lot of taking back. Okay. Prelim trash cans. One square city mile filled with trash cans. A Hoboken of trash cans? A Hoboken of trash cans. Of trash cans. Okay. Yes. One square city mile of Hoboken. Filled with trash cans. Okay. It's prelim. So, y'all, this, I hope you enjoyed the story. This is only the beginning. We have 11 more weeks each Sunday coming up, 12 weeks on Wednesday Patreon to deep dive into all the trash candy of these stories. Hang tight. I promise the part that you want to hear is coming. I've only... Whichever part that is. Scratched the surface today. Just dipping a little toe in my hashtag Trash Pack Chili. That's it. We're coming back with a Victorian-style trash bag. But before that, let's take a little break to uh, reset our mental health. Let's do that. We'll be back. So during the break, Stacey, I have gusseted up my Victorian corset and applied a whole lot of rouge of misogynistic standards. Hmm. I'm ready to hear your Victorian trash pile.
0: That's My story is called "Charles Dickens was a deeply cruel, cheating dirtbag with an amazing PR machine."
1: What? That's a hell of a title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good. That's... And thus ends my story. <laughs> no. We'll see you next um, week for another yeah, episode of Trashy exactly. Divorces. I have said what I came here to say. Wow. Tell me, I need right. more of this. It's a. It's. A, I didn't know any of this until this week. There's a movie that I watched called The Invisible Woman. Wow. All right. Let's get into it. In the pantheon of English-language writers, Charles Dickens holds a special place. His unique mix of journalism and fiction produced a clear-eyed view of life in the Victorian era. Orphaned children, oppressive step-parents, abusive workhouses, and a dirty, grinding poverty enforced by strict societal codes. Oh, porridge. Exactly. He's also often credited with inventing the modern notion of Christmas, though, through his A Christmas Carol. Really? Yeah. So apparently, you know, when he was alive, like Parliament met on Christmas Day. Like it, it was it was a holiday, but it wasn't
1: the holiday. it wasn't this
0: thing we do every year. Um, anyway, possibly a better time back then. I don't know.
1: <laughs> but all the soot. There was a lot of soot. Lots
0: of soot. Uh, for everyone with complicated feelings around the holidays, you can thank old Chuck for that.
1: <laughs>
0: so he was by Putting far. The dick and Dickens. Yeah, like short of like a king, which it was the Victorian era, so it was a queen. He was the most famous man in Britain in his later years. Like he just. He was. We don't have literary celebrities like this anymore. He was a rock star. <laughs> like, he.
1: Interesting.
0: It's just, it's hard to, like when he died, there were comparisons made in the press to Christ.
1: Wow. Yes. That's a big, kind of a big deal. Yes. K-O-A-B-D. So his
0: peers, his children, everyone in his life, they were completely addicted to giving him the great man treatment. They were so honored to live their lives in the presence of the greatness that was Charles Dickens.
1: So instead of a TM by his name, he has a GM. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Charles Dickens. Great Great man man. myth. I mean, so what's ended up, what ended up being the legend of Charles Dickens was deeply deformed to the actual life he lived because he, he may very well have been a great man. He obviously produced great art, but they had to lie a lot to, to make that great man label stick.
1: So what I'm hearing you say. Is that you are continuing 100% with our brand of trashy divorces with crushing your heroes? Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Let's go. Yeah, cool. Okay. All
0: right. It turns out that the father of modern Christmas was kind of a shitbag who very publicly <laughs> abandoned his wife, took their children from her when he met a sweet young thing. Let's do this. Okay. Charles Dickens was born on February 7th, 1812, Aquarius. He was the second of eight children. When he was 12, his father was sent to debtor's prison, which was a thing back then. So Charles was forced to quit school at the age of 12 and go to work 10 hours a day at a warehouse where he pasted labels on poot. On on poot? On poots. (laughs) So Charles was forced to quit school and work 10 hours a day at a warehouse pasting labels on pots of boot black. Ah. I like dad boots better. I think I believe in that. Here. Okay. Um <laughs> Americans know this stuff as shoe polish. And he, like the process was very it was a multi it wasn't just like dab on some glue and pay, like there was this whole wax paper thing that had to be done. It was whatever. The building was rat infested. And it was like, there were three children who were assigned to this task. And apparently they were like swatting rats away all the time because it was Dickensian. Wow. <laughs> what we would call this. Okay. There was good news though, because eventually his grandmother died and left money to his father. So his father got out of prison.
1: Oh, good times. This Yay. Is Thanks, this- Granny. Exactly. <laughs>
0: dying, Granny. Like, woof. The Victorian era was tough, man. So this experience left a big mark on young Charles, as I you imagine. And various elements of this period will occur throughout his work forever. I mean,
1: no, I can see like five threads. Like, oh, 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 mm-hmm. this was the nightmare of yeah like childhood
0: reduced to one parent who is your mother
1: in the Victor. Yeah.
0: Oof. Okay. So as a young man, and there were, there were, he was the second of eight, so there were six kids behind him. As a young man, he dreamed of a career in the theater and attended performances avidly. He taught himself shorthand, and then he sort of manipulated his way into a distant relative's press box in a London civil court. Like you do. Like you do. And thereby, he became history's first freelance law blogger. What? What? <laughs> Uh, but that is how he supported himself for several years, is he would just, like, sit with...
1: I don't a know, like... uncle? Some,
0: yeah, some cousin, some distant cousin, something, in his little, in his press box and write up the... And then your carriage struck my child and killed it, and I would like two shilling, please. I, I... That's um, crazy. Yeah, it maybe didn't go that way. I don't know. So journalism brought him a professional relationship and then a friendship... With the
1: editor of a paper called The Evening Chronicle
0: named George Hogarth.
1: I just do it for exposure. (laughs) This will lead me to my next gig. (laughs) My
0: next unpaid gig. Okay. Uh, George Hogarth is the father of many children, including three daughters, Georgina, Mary, and Catherine. Okay. In April 1836, while he was serializing the Pickwick Papers, Charles and Catherine Hogarth, born 19 May 1815, a Taurus, Ah. were married. And after their honeymoon, her 17-year-old sister, Mary, and his younger brother, Frederick, moved in to help them run their household. It was apparently very common for like, the younger unmarried
1: siblings to who've in with the most recently married. Yeah. That doesn't sound dangerous at all.
0: <sighs> it doesn't at all. But you can also understand, like, you know, their parents had ten and eight kids respectively and so probably being able to You're offload just taking some, care
1: of who you can take care of yeah into yeah.
0: another household yeah where they're going to get fed is probably really helpful okay so catherine gives birth to their first of 10 children charlie <sighs> in january of 1837 yeah and nine of them survived to adulthood which wow seems like good That's... good numbers for the time
1: he may have had a soap connection <laughs>
0: Little antibiotic connection. Anyway, Charles became quite fond of young Mary, living in their home. And in 1837, because the times were nothing if not Dickensian, Mary suddenly died at what? the age of seventeen. <gasps> they all went out to the theater. They came back, and she either suffered heart failure or a stroke. Oh, that was a bad
1: play. There's a. <laughs> poor mary i'm sorry i don't mean to make light of mary's death that's very very sad
0: it's very very sad yeah um yeah and this sent him into a grief tailspin and i kind of only add that detail because catherine's other sister georgina will later join the household and become the subject of rumors about his affections
1: oh
0: so after mary's death uh this is the only time in his life that he missed deadlines Really? But he was so affected that he stopped working for a short time, and he and Catherine went to stay on a farm like out in the country, like fresh air, um, for a few weeks. Okay. Upon his return, he completed Pickwick and then Oliver Twist, both of which were read by Queen Victoria. It's crazy. It's crazy. Nicholas Nickleby followed. There's a story about a time... Ah, this is... Yes, okay. This is classic Dickens. Early 1840s or so, he is flirting... With the fiance of a friend of a friend, like his lawyer's buddy's fiance, sure, Dickens married Dickens. Just he starts flirting. He grabs her, and they run down to the sea together. I guess he's like holding her hand or something. And like this is an era where your reputation, right, is like, paramount. Yeah, yeah, you cannot be you cannot be an engaged woman flirting with you know some rando, even if the rando is Charles Dickens, like. So she eventually gets free and like runs away from him, and then I guess forever. If they were in company together, she stayed well away from him
1: because you tried to abduct me he was to that guy, assault me in the ocean.
0: <sighs> yeah, um, so not great. Uh, <laughs> this is sort of an example of Dickens leaning into his fame, I think. And putting a woman in an uncomfortable and possibly reputation-damaging situation in an era where a damaged reputation could destroy your life. Yeah, you've got the power. Mm-hmm. As a mm-hmm. man, you have the... I- mm-hmm. Well, his own reputation was quite dear to him, as we shall see.
1: What a dick.
0: All right, for some context, ends. let's talk about Catherine, who seems like she was kind of a badass in her own right. Catherine was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. And the family relocated to England when she was nine. She was the oldest of 10. And when Charles encountered her at the age of 19, he was drawn to her brains and her beauty. She was a very, apparently very quick-witted. And uh... anyway, after they married, Charles was deliriously happy and wrote that if he became rich and famous, he would never be happier than he was in the tiny apartment they shared in their first year together.
1: Aww. Well...
0: It seems like Catherine was very much down for whatever her husband was up to. Once he was an established writer, he was able to occasionally indulge his early dreams of the theater.
1: The theater.
0: And Catherine and later the kids would participate, and they were they were deemed amateur productions at the time, but they were held like in playhouses in cities, like they were public performances, and. Um, he will
1: like community theater ish. Yeah, yeah, that Kinda. seems yeah. that seems right. But they were there are sometimes... no professional or a- actors. We're well, just... they
0: they would sometimes bring in nah. professional actors as well. And I think it was often like a charity thing. They were you know raising funds for whatever, and so they would do a performance of some play that Dickens and his buddy wrote or whatever. Cool. But it, it's another like when you're Charles Dickens, you can do what you want. You want to put on a play? Cool. <laughs> we will sell that out. <laughs> Because you're Charles Dickens. All right. So, yeah. So Catherine's, like, in shows that he's putting on in 1851, she publishes a cookbook called What Shall We Have for Dinner?
1: What Shall We Have for Dinner?
0: Satisfactorily answered by numerous bills of fare for from two to 18 persons. And, uh, oh, and she used the pseudonym Lady Maria Clutterbuck, which tells me that this is a woman with an enormous sense of humor... And just re- like her own creative interests.
1: How do we get our trashy paws on this book? It's it sounds on, like it would be a hit. It's it's on Amazon.
0: Um oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So this went through several editions. It was like through 1860. It was still being republished. Holy cats. So yeah, I mean, she just like, yes, Charles Dickens is a man of, you know, bright mind and all of that. And it seems like he was partnered with. Someone similarly... Equal to the task. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the early 1850s, Catherine was apparently encountering some health troubles. And she was actually a way to recuperate from a nervous condition when their youngest daughter, Dora, who was like eight months old at the time, had a seizure and died. Oh, no. Because it was Dickensian. Like, seriously, this is a terrible, terrible time. So Charles is forced to write a letter... To his wife who is recuperating
1: he oh, does not heartbreak he does
0: not tell her that the daughter has died he tells her that the daughter it's such a weird letter is very very ill and he does not believe she will recover but she is in no pain and looks perfectly content asleep it's very weird anyway so one of his friends takes the letter to Catherine. he's at home with the children and the friend tells like gives the letter and then then explains that the child is actually dead. <laughs> it's very weird. It's very weird.
1: Victorian era brutality. It, seriously.
0: Um, so this, of course, you know, did not help her nervous condition. So I'm not really clear if this period or the loss of the child fractured their relationship in some way. Or if like Charles just got bored over time. But it really does seem like in this decade of the 1850s, he just grew to deeply hate his wife for reasons that are never really explained in any reasonable way. Huh. In 1857, Charles took in some theater and became acquainted with an 18-year-old actress named Ellen Lawless Turnin. She was born March 3rd, 1839, Pisces. Nellie, as she is known, came from a family of actresses. Uh, Her mother was a prominent actress. Her two sisters were all actresses. So Charles casts Ellen, Nellie, in an August 1857 production of The Frozen Deep that he put on in Manchester, along with her mom and one of her sisters. Sure. And then Charles just starts popping up at performances that Nellie's in. And, uh, he's writing to friends that, uh, Gosh, my marriage to Catherine sure isn't doing well lately. It's just, just going right down the tubes. Hm. It's curious. I need to rush out to see this play. Uh here's the super shitty part.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> Wait for it.
0: In eighteen fifty eight, Catherine receives a package delivered by a London jeweller and opens it. Oh well that's nice. Right. Inside is a gold bracelet. Lovely. With a note from Charles to Nellie, according to the later account of one of their children, Charles ordered her to visit the turn home.
1: (sighs) Nobody. Nope. Nope. So
0: there is a book called The Invisible Woman that is about this affair. And there is a film based on the book, also called The Invisible Woman. And in the scene, it is presented as Catherine delivering the misdelivered bracelet to Nellie on Charles's orders and it is intense. Good performances in that film. Props to all them. Okay. So yeah, Charles really seems to now hate his wife. He apparently woke up one day and realized that he was the father of nine living children and that kids are expensive. So he blames, big reveal. <laughs> a big reveal. He blames Catherine for the state of affairs Like, on this weird logic that because she came from a big family, she was one of ten, that somehow this was her fault, although Charles himself was one of eight. So it's just, like, tip-to-toe nonsense. Like, he was just looking for stuff to be mad about. I think it's tip-to-toe your dick
1: that causes the kids, buddy. (laughs) Tip-to-toe, all of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Catherine doesn't get pregnant without your influence. Yeah. Mm. Okay,
0: so to heap on the cruelty, because really, Charles Dickens... Mixed bag. In June of 1858, he publishes a notice in a bunch of London newspapers telling the world that he and Catherine have separated while strenuously denying the rumors that were swirling about his affair. And the, like. it wasn't clear. There were, there were rumors about his affair with an actress and there were rumors about his affair with Georgina, his sister-in-law, Catherine's sister. Cool. Apparently, cool. the Georgina rumors may not have been true. All right. He went on to give a statement to a New York newspaper that basically said Catherine didn't love their children and that it was Georgina who had held the family together for years. Uh. It's just gross. So Catherine herself returned (laughs) to her family and Charles tried to keep all of the kids and like he didn't want to pay for them, but he certainly didn't want mom to have them. And the oldest son, Charlie, was like, fuck you, dad, and went to stay with mom The other eight kids and Georgina remained loyal to him. And Georgina backed up his claims about her sister. What a trashy Victorian mess this is. Yeah, it is. It's real screwed up. The rest of Catherine's family was furious at Charles Dickens, obviously. But Georgina, again, like everyone's in the thrall of the great man, you know, like Catherine stayed loyal to him. Like Catherine never went on the offense. Anyway, they never divorced because that would damage his reputation. (laughs) Victorians did not divorce. Okay. Meanwhile, Charles is widely viewed by his friends to have lost his goddamn mind when it comes to Nellie. But everybody is just so awestruck that they keep a secret. So he breaks off his friendship with William Thackeray because Thackeray understands that Dickens is lying to him when he denies the affairs and he can't like, he he won't accept it. And Dickens is like, well, fine, we're done. My mouth is on the floor. In 1860, Nellie stops acting and just was the secret companion of Charles Dickens for the next decade. Her mother would often travel with them when they went to fun places like Paris.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And Charles would rent homes under assumed names and she would live in them. And he kept his London home and... There was another, out oh, like a suburban home. Mandu. There's very little documentation about the specifics of their relationship because of the great man thing. So none of the Turnins ever wrote a word about this. And like everyone in his life, this relationship lasted 13 years until his death in 1870. So all of the people close to him know her very well. She is his companion. She's been a side piece for 13 years. Yeah. Wow. So John Forster, who literally wrote the biography of his dear friend, fails to mention her at all. Never comes up. Just declines to address the fact that he was quietly partnered for more than a decade after his separation from his wife. And apparently all the other biographies that followed have sort of carried that through. It's just this weird end of life period where he was just alone he was not alone <laughs> oh my and like weirdly Forster didn't seem to believe that Nellie's recollect- recollections of Dickens might be interesting <laughs> to explore right Nellie's sister Franny who also knew Dickens very very well oh I bet she went on to become a novelist oh never never a word about it she married a novelist very prominent, Thomas Adolphus Trollope. Thomas wrote a three-volume autobiography of himself that barely mentions his wife. <laughs> because you can't, like, well, okay, she had been an actress, like, and acting was sort of a morally dubious profession in the Victorian era, at least according to sort of middle-class sensibilities. Right. But also because if you tug on that turn and string at all, It's going to lead you to Charles Dickens, icon of England. Off limits. Off limits, considered absolutely faultless in his own life, a godlike figure in his time and in his mind. It was not until his last surviving child died in 1933 that scholars began to explore the relationship with Nellie. And again, this was an era where reputation mattered profoundly. So Nellie herself was unable To ever speak about her long relationship with Charles without causing herself serious damage. Wow. And this is super weird. Six years after he died, she finally marries. She finds a guy who's 12 years younger, does not know anything about her relationship with Charles Dickens, and she tells him that she is 23 years old, two years younger than him. Oh my god! (laughs) She is 37 years old when they marry. What? So she literally just like erased... Her whole that time. time period. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they had two children together and it is. Oh, my God. It is speculated that she had a child with Charles Dickens who died as an infant. But again, there's very little documentation of. Yeah. Okay. Well, she outlived her husband by four years, dying of cancer in 1914. Charles had left her a thousand pounds plus a trust fund upon his death to ensure that she would have a comfortable life. Oh,
1: well, that's nice.
0: Catherine Dickens outlived her shitbag husband by nearly a decade, <laughs> dying of cancer in 1879. As she was dying, she gave all of the letters she had received from Charles. They didn't really correspond after the separation, but, but they're early correspondence. So she gave all this to her daughter, Kate, and said, Give these to the British Museum, that the world may know Charles loved me once.
1: I hope that you burn. Seriously, yeah.
0: And she was buried beside Dora the infant the only one of the dickens family to be buried in the family plot
1: because he's in poet's corner interesting so what i'm hearing you say in victorian times it was number one queen victoria Mm
0: -hmm.
1: number two jesus (laughs) number three charles dickens
0: yeah and two two and two and three may switched
1: around Mm -hmm. a little
0: or they may just sort of like bleed into each other (laughs) It it was, it's weird. It's like, you can, you can have that great man myth as long as you erase significant parts of the story.
1: Well, as long as you have all your friends in the press that can erase significant parts of the story for you and make sure they never get out.
0: It is remarkable. It's really, I, I mean, there was like a friend of one of the children's, one of the letters that they have substantiating Nellie, a friend of one of the kids wrote to them and was like, I heard that Charlie ran into his dad walking with that actress lady who's all in the news and cuz it was a like it was a big scandal that his pr machine successfully quashed he just insisted that there was no affair and then went off to france with her for months at a time or rented houses under assumed names
1: stacy that was amazing that was some high quality victorian <laughs> trashy trashy dirt do you have a oh no divorce so we don't do, can we just do trash can ratings on I'm Charles gonna do, Dickens? Great. I, yeah, I, we should do trash can ratings because that, it, it
0: was, it was unimaginably cruel because like Catherine could never go on to we marry because yeah. yeah, he publicly maligned his wife and the mother of his 10 children for no particular reason that he he just decided he didn't like her after 20 years of marriage how many trash cans let's do 22 for the number of years they were they were not separated okay okay before he just publicly tossed her aside for an 18 year old i'm feeling
1: super creative today can we do 22,000 trash cans the size of porridge bowls Floating on the Thames. Sure, sure. So Mm. here's what I think about this, just in the English versus the French mentality. Dickens is a generation before, certainly. But the next generation that's happening across the pond in France, all of those mistresses are not going to be able to shut their mouths about every great man, like Picasso, all of the writers in the scene and the set like one generation sort of makes that instrumental of a difference with we don't talk about it or we do talk about it and what does our culture say about talking about it that's just something fascinating to think about
0: yeah well it's the victorian social mores, but it it really his he held like a religious like position in the british mind so apparently in the what 1930s or whatever when when it was revealed that he had had this mm-hmm. affair the british public was outraged and just fear i mean they were so, so
1: scandalized
0: yeah like the guy had been dead for decades
1: and it's it still made that much of an impact yeah
0: it was a it was just a huge blow to like the national identity of the nation that charles dickens had stepped out on his wife but it sounds like he,
1: sounds like he'd been trying to step out for a while. Come on, Edwardian times—we're ready for you. <sighs> yeah. Good lord, Stacy, that was awesome. I'm disappointed. Oh, that Charles Dickens was a dick bag. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good story, though. It doesn't <laughs> diminish your story. Hey, everybody! Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Trashy Divorces. Don't forget to ooh. Catch us on the flip side this week on Patreon. We've got Trashy Tutors in the lineup. The kickoff of Ocean's Eleven, 12 Degrees of Frank Sinatra. It's looking like right now it's going to be a little Rat Pack overview for you on Wednesday. Until we see you again, you know what you have to do. We're so happy to be back and we hope that you keep it trashy. So, so trashy.
0: I bit my tongue saying that. We hope that you keep it trashy
1: so so trashy cheers y'all thanks for tuning in catch you next week bye bye and thanks to you for listening trashy divorces is a hemlock creatives production created and produced right here in atlanta georgia by us stacy and alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant melissa O. our art is by sydney v
0: smith that's sydney v smith at CarbonMade.com. and our music is used with permission of ratsy Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio.
1: You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your
0: life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at
1: Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly